A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. Well, you might well think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. Well, of course, you would be right. But then again, so is everything else. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in and around the world of politics. So today we'll be joined by the returning Dr. Krish Kandaya. Krish is an author, broadcaster and social entrepreneur. He currently heads up the Sanctuary Foundation, which campaigns to support refugees and find housing for them. After supporting those fleeing the Ukraine conflict, we'll hear what he's doing to support those escaping Gaza. But before that, on Saturday, Armistice Day, seven men were charged for disorder in central London, with offences including inciting racial hatred. The Metropolitan Police reported 145 people were arrested in total, the vast majority of whom were far-right counter-protesters to the pro-Palestinian march also being held on Armistice Day. Nine police officers were also injured. We rightly pray for peace around the world as nations rage against each other and rumours of wars rear their heads. But we should also pray for peace at home. As followers of Jesus, we should not be willing recruits in the culture war that is pitting demographic groups against each other. Culture war just entrenches our biases and embeds us among people like us, unwilling to consider the views or situations of those on the other side. It entails a lack of grace towards others and a lack of curiosity about why people hold different views to our own. It reduces everyone who doesn't think the same things as us to being the enemy. Leading politicians, particularly the Home Secretary at the time, have a solemn duty not to instigate unrest or breaches of the peace. So Ella Braverman wrote an opinion piece in the Times last week accusing the Metropolitan Police of playing favourites, acting more leniently towards some groups of protesters than towards others. This article was not apparently approved by the Prime Minister. On Monday morning this week, she was sacked from the government. Her removal was not only because she was consistently forging her own path rather than abiding by collective cabinet responsibility and making the PM look weak by not taking action. Her removal was also about the tone of her comments from which other government ministers increasingly sought to distance themselves. She was seen to be deliberately stoking divisions in society. We do not know how many members of the far right hooligan tendency were encouraged to turn out because of Braverman's comments, but we do know that our leaders' words have the power to impact unity and safety in our communities. Careless talk costs. Already, we see both sides digging in as Braverman's defenders claim that she was sacked for speaking the truth. But these are sensitive issues that need wise leadership and carefully worded conversations. As Christians seeking to engage with these issues, we have a deep responsibility not only to pray for such leadership, but also to resist the easy option of being siloed into sides in the culture war. Our path is a narrow one. Refusing to join a side doesn't mean neutrality or keeping silent. We are to stand against injustice wherever we see it, and this may well mean offending more people than simply by picking a position. It may well mean offending both sides, as we refuse to take the easy option of jumping into one trench or the other. Like Jesus, we are on the side of children, the captives, the poor and the sick, those who tragically face the brunt of the fallout on both sides 
have any conflict. But it also means holding true to our convictions with all humility, graciousness and gentleness and refusing to retaliate the accusations, but instead turning the other cheek. We would do well to heed the warning of Proverbs 15 verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Let's not be those who deliberately stoke anger, but those who speak the truth in love. Zechariah's song in Luke 2 verses 78 and 79 ends by pointing to the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Perhaps this can be our prayer this week. The new Home Secretary, James Cleverly, faces a daunting intrigue, especially as we expect a Supreme Court ruling this week on the government's controversial policy to deport immigrants to Rwanda. We must pray that he won't simply be an opinion pundit, but a level-headed authority figure, that he will take the correct hard decisions with strong conviction, but that he'd still be able to listen and change his mind. The return of former Prime Minister David Cameron to the front line as Foreign Secretary is a move that very few people saw coming. Is it a desperate last throw of the dice by Rishi Sunak, or a wise move to bring in an experienced head? Will David Cameron's appointment soothe divisions in the Conservative Party, or inflame them even more, as right-wing pro-Brexit Conservatives vent their rage? Whichever is the case, let's pray that he is granted wisdom and courage as he seeks to represent the UK, in an increasingly disturbing foreign policy environment. And finally, let's pray for God's help to show all of our leaders and all of us the way to walk the path of peace through the treacherous ground of the culture wars ahead. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, so to our guest this week, Dr. Krish Kandaya, founder of the Sanctuary Foundation, amongst many other things. Krish, good morning. It's wonderful to have you with us. Good morning, Tim. Nice to be with you. Well, thanks for giving up your time. I'm going to start off with something I meant to ask uh, somebody a little while ago. I, I had a, uh, a fellow MP come to see me recently, seeking me out because I was a Christian, over the Israel-Gaza crisis. Mm. And his question was, um, you know, Tim, you are a Christian. Uh, some Christians think Israel's kind of special, that there's um, some kind of prophetic role that it fulfills, and therefore it should be judged differently to other countries. Now, I'll tell you my response in a minute, if you like, but <laughs> why do some Christians, do some Christians think that? Why do they think that? Definitely Christians think that, and they think that in different ways. I mean, it, there's no doubt that the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, as Christians call it, um, centers on the story of Israel, that God would choose Abraham and Sarah, an elderly couple, to be... A, an elderly barren couple to be the mother and father of a great nation seems unthinkable. It's, it's an incredible miracle story. And part of the promise to Abraham was that he would one day have a land to live in. So it's understandable that many Christians have an affection, a respect uh, for Israel, because without Israel, there, there wouldn't have been Jesus. Jesus was Jewish. Uh, but some Christians then think that um, Israel gets a free pass when it comes to the current conflict that we're in. And that's not how I read the Bible. The, the, the land that Israel got was promised by God, um, but it was a present, a, a gift that God gave 
Israel, not because they were better than anyone else, but because he had a plan. And the plan was told to Abraham that, that God would choose Israel. And then through Israel, all the nations would be blessed. So coming into the land was, was tied to a, a job, which was to be a blessing to the entire world. And we see that fulfilled in Jesus. But the third thing about coming into the land, it, it was provisional. Sometimes God said to his people, look, th there's a deal here. If, if you live my way, you get to live in the land. If you don't live my way, then I'm going to throw you out of the land. And we saw that happen in, in the exile, like in the story of Daniel. So um, I, I think in the end, every nation will be judged by God in the same way about how particularly how we've treated vulnerable people. Mm. I'm pretty much where you are, uh, Krish, for what it's worth. I think that Israel is a country that's got every right to exist, uh, many good things about it and many bad things about its leadership, but it's to be judged on the same level as every other country. Um, you said that, you know, some people give Israel a free pass. God didn't. <laughs> yes. um, and and so we should all be held to account. I mean, given we are where we are, um, a month and a little bit since the uh, terrorist outrages that seem to spark the current phase of the of the conflict. Uh, how do you think? How should Christians, rank and file Christians, yeah. listen to this program in the UK and elsewhere in the West? How how should we be thinking about the Carnegie Gaza? Uh, how should we be thinking about Israel and its actions? It's a huge question, Tim, and I wish we had a few hours to kind of <laughs> get into the detail of it. I, I would say. Look, the attack on the 7th of October was absolutely terrible and barbaric and, and nothing can justify the kind of cruelty that took place on that day. And um, those that are, I think, rightly sympathetic with the plight of the Palestinian people, I don't think we can then say that was justified and um, what happened by uh, Hamas into Israel. Um, and in one sense, I wish I could go back in time and do something mm -hmm. about the children, the women, the elderly folk that, that died under terrible circumstances, but we can't, that, that time has passed. But now as I look at the situation in Gaza, and according to Save the Children and the UN, every 10 minutes a child is dying, there is something we can do about that. We mm. can stop that ongoing killing. Um, and I, I think if, if a ceasefire or a pause is unthinkable, and it seems to be politically for whatever reason, um, that the next best option for me is a humanitarian evacuation mm. voluntarily, temporarily uh, for mothers and children. And um, the, the frame in my mind is, do you remember five years ago, 12 Thai footballers got stuck down a cave? Yeah. The world stopped and, and rightly so. We, we all kind of empathise with the plight of those children in a cave filling up with water. And, you know, Elon Musk wanted to send a mini sub. We sent rescue divers. Um, you know, hundreds of people got involved in uh, Thailand. They stopped a billion cubic litres of water from flooding uh, this cave. It was an unprecedented rescue effort. And they did it. And it was incredibly difficult they had to, you know, do all sorts of things that no one had ever done before. But they did it. And I think that's the right kind of response. You know, every two hours, 12 children die in Gaza, but the world hasn't stopped and thought, what could we do at least to rescue the children? So what would that look like? Uh, looking at historical contexts and more recent conflicts, World War II, Ukraine, and your work in this area as well, what would that look like practically? How would we provide a way for children to uh, escape that conflict, families to escape that conflict. And of course, what would it look like in terms of 
countries like ours becoming yeah. a sanctuary. Yeah, look, I'm I'm no expert. I'd love to work this up with with other people that are, are good at this. But again, my frame of reference are the evacuees. Do you remember in the Second World War, we helped children get out of the cities and go to the countryside. We didn't think they were moving there permanently. We thought it was just a temporary time to get the children out of the pain and the damage that was going on in the Blitz. Mm. Um, and I know there are lots of issues in the surrounding countries because of the, the history of conflict in the area. So it seems that none of the surrounding countries are willing or in a position to be able to receive uh, children and mothers. So Hamza Youssef, the head of the Scottish government said, that there needs to be a global response. And, and I heard that and I thought, okay, let's ask if mm. people in the UK would want to respond. We've had a couple of hundred people, a couple of hundred households say, we'll do it. You know, we'll we'll do a similar program if it was available, like we did for Ukraine, mothers and children. And I think symbolically, Britain's saying, look, you know what, we'll take the first 500 or the first thousand mm. signals something to the rest of the world. There have been other refugee movements where countries have have said we'll do our bit we'll play our part and i think collectively that means any nation however far away uh, from the israel gaza geography could still be involved and and do their bit and that would of course need the uk government to agree to such a scheme however limited and is, is that something you've been talking to politicians about oh i've been trying really hard and i've 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 hit brick wall after brick wall and I've been testing it on my friends. I was speaking to a friend in Lebanon yesterday. I said, is this a silly idea? Is it crazy? You know, we, we all wish there was a, another way. A ceasefire would be great. But, you know, in one sense, rightly, Israel wants to go after Hamas. And mm. like this is the opportunity to do it. And, and I, actually, I agree. They should be pursuing Hamas. But they should do it in a way that allows civilians some degree of safety. And that's not been possible. There seems to be no safe place in Gaza for people to shelter, even when people have gone to the south where they've been told bombs have hit them and, and they can't go to hospitals and schools because sometimes Hamas has used them as military bases. So if there is no space, safe space in, in Gaza, for me, the only other option is a humanitarian evacuation. Well, in, in uh, not entirely breaking news, Chris, we've got a new Home Secretary. Perhaps we should try it on with him and see what he has to say. Um, well, I, yeah, it's an interesting moment, isn't it? Um, I, I, I was shocked like the rest of the world. At one level, it, it seems to contradict Rishi Sunak's promise that he was going to be different to everyone that's gone before. Hmm. At another level, you know, David Cameron, and I wasn't a Brexiteer, but still... He is a man of, of international stature and maybe serious times calls for a serious person. He yeah. was the one in 2015 that said we would do another kinder transport after the death of Alan Kurdy. Do you remember that little three-year-old Syrian boy? And, you know, he promised 20,000 children would come to the UK over five years. I had a tremendous response when we put out a call for people to get ready for that by training to be foster parents. 15,000 people said they'd do it. But actually, we never fulfilled that promise. So maybe it's a redemption moment for David Cameron mm. uh, as regards to the children of the Middle East. The UK government would need to accept some responsibility or need to graft Gaza into its settlement programme. At the moment, it only has a, a few of those, places like Syria, Afghanistan yeah. and obviously Ukraine. Um, but here we have a conflict which is on our televisions every night. Yes. Of course, great fear that people get you know, compassion and outrage fatigue about it. 
this is our opportunity to do something practical and sacrificial to help those people who are completely innocent. It is, and and we've we've done it before. You know, nineteen thirty nine, the Kinder Transport. Um, I even remember children coming just for a summer to get out of Chernobyl. Do you remember back in the nineties? Yeah. Um, and again, we're not talking about a refugee resettlement because for many Palestinians, it's really important that they know they can go back. This isn't a way of clearing Palestine to to allow Israel to come in and reoccupy. Uh, in in its fullness this is a temporary evacuation so no one's um citizens rights are being undermined but it just seems unthinkable we're watching children die every day and no one's going hang on you know stop there's, there's got to be another way if a ceasefire is impossible a mucky business with tim farron we're joined by dr krish kandaya founder of the sanctuary foundation we've talked about our sense of almost uh, helplessness and powerlessness in the face of suffering in Gaza. And very often uh, UK politicians will speak as though they've got more influence and power than they really have. Of course, we do have quite a bit of power over our own country and our own community. Going back to the status of the debate in the UK, I observe that I have, uh, amongst Jewish friends and people I know from the Jewish community, I have never experienced a time when they have felt so yeah. afraid and so under threat. Um, you know, we're, we're not a very multicultural community in, in South Lakeland, I can tell you. But uh, <laughs> a Jewish friend of mine who travels out of county to go to synagogue, similar age to me, very anti-Netanyahu, um, but is observant, uh, emailed me the other day to say if for the first time in his life he felt unsafe going to synagogue and um, what can politicians do better to make sure we promote unity within our communities um, rather than what appears to be happening at the moment it, it's become such a difficult topic to even talk about isn't it but I, I, i'm not pro-israeli or pro-hamas or pro-palestine i'm pro-humanity mm-hmm. you know let, let's look out to speak up for the civilians that are caught in the middle of that. And that, that's true for Jewish people here in the UK who, as you say, feel unsafe being uh, visibly Jewish. Some parents are telling their children not to talk about being Jewish. They're taking things off the front of their houses that identify them as being Jewish. That's not right. There's somehow we, the civil society, we are our, our, our political officers need to make sure we're not inflaming tension Um, but offering uh, support and sanctuary to everybody. Similarly, some of the ways that people have talked about if they seem to be pro-Palestine supporting a ceasefire, they've been described as anti-Semitic. That's not the same thing. And the marches have been, um, if you like, hijacked, haven't they, by extremists. Mm. Um, Many of the people I know that have gone to a march that's supporting um, those that are, uh, have lost families or are hostages who are from Israel uh, are heard to be against Palestinians. And that, that's not true. Uh, and many of the people that have gone on the pro-Palestine marches are said to be anti-Semitic. And that's not true either. There's a few, there's a minority that seem to be stirring up, you know, unbelievably horrible things. They're saying terrible things, making this chant from the river to the sea, yeah. not helping anything. Um and sadly, I, I feel, and, and Suella Braden, our previous Home Secretary, mm-hmm. just added kind of petrol onto the fire by calling anyone that was marching 
it, for, a, for a ceasefire um, in a, as being involved in a hate march and, mm. and criticising the integrity of our police officers. That that didn't help. And I think I'm hoping with, with James Cleverly, there's there's an opportunity for someone who can de-escalate, who can bring a calmness um, and really seek a genuine peace here as, as well as there. I, I do feel that one of the things that um, sometimes marks the debate in the last few weeks is you listen to politicians, and I try to keep an eye on myself, I have to say, um, just to not exonerate myself, but you listen to politicians and you think, what's your motivation in saying this thing? Are you trying to heal the situation or are you in some way weaponizing it for what you already think? And the dangers I see too many doing that. Now, Christians... We're to be different, and but we'll we'll still sometimes disagree. There'll be people who take a very pro-Israel position, and some will take a very pro-Palestine position. Brackets. I think it's possible to be both. But for those people who are Christians who disagree, how can we still work together to advocate for and serve the vulnerable effectively in this in this conflict? I've been thinking about that, and you know, the the, the best solution I found was could, could we at least offer to to show hospitality to women and children that need to get out of Gaza that that's a signal isn't it that that we are willing to to do something practical to help I was trying to work out whether it was time to ask Christians to support Jewish people when and protect them as they they go to their places of worship I've seen that happen around the world uh, mm. where you know maybe a Muslim community will, will stand around a church to stop it being firebombed mm. um, you know, is that what we need to do? We need to offer solidarity to the Muslim community, to the Jewish community, say, look, we respect you. We don't necessarily agree with uh, all of your theological views, but we recognise in you humanity that, that is valuable to God. We want to show that love to you in practical ways. I, I'm, I'm toying with that. Is that something that we need to do? Have we got to that moment? Sadly, every time people get onto the streets, it seems to be hijacked yeah. and misread and miscued. So that's what's, what stopped me. But I'm wondering, Tim, it, our, our politics seems to be so volatile and polarised at the moment. Um, and yet this is such an urgent need. Do, do you think there's any room for a bipartisan moment, for a, a cross-party engagement? Um, it, it, it seems to be people are making positions because of the potential election coming up very soon, uh, rather than actually what's needed in this moment for our nation and and. and I'm, I'm hoping, you know, David Cameron coming back uh, might give us an opportunity to think differently about that. But do you think a, a bipartisan cross-party task force or moment is possible or, or useful? Call me naive. I think it's possible. I think it's also maybe there's a market for it. I fear that in the kind of culture war that we're in at the moment, everyone wants to weaponize every issue to prove that they were always right and the other side were always wrong. Yeah. Just feel that the the public are tired of it and I go knocking on doors and I find an electorate that is tired they're happy to talk about the hospital and the you know the street lamps and the bus shelters yes. the minute you go anywhere beyond our borders in our community people it's almost like the shutters come down because people are just weary and upset uh, and that's how you deal with a sense of uh, outrage fatigue and I think people are crying out for politicians who will act in a statesperson-like way yes. and work together and do stuff that's just right, even if it's not sensational. So I think it, what you're suggesting is, is right. And I think the other thing is that Christians and communities can model that, can't they? 
about how we welcome people of different backgrounds, how we speak about these issues with grace and how we disagree, disagree well. Yes. And every single one of these people we're talking about in Israel, Palestine, on our streets here in the UK, they are image bearers of God Almighty and they are of enormous significance. And we're called to love and serve them even when they're not all that lovable. That's exactly right, Tim. And again, there's a, there's a lot of anger and upset and, and feeling that our politicians aren't in it for the greater public good. They're in it for themselves. Mm. And I know that's not true for a, a huge number of politicians, but they're just not seeing that in our public life at the moment. And so I, I think anything we can do to model something different would be would be fantastic. Well, my, my final word of encouragement to you, Chris, before we sadly have to wrap up is keep doing what you're doing. You're an enormous force for good in our communities and a great witness as well. And in lobbying politicians, and this is a word you know to all people listening, Christians throughout the country, um, think about how you can engage with your local member of parliament uh, who may have all sorts of different opinions on these matters. How can you um, go along them, lovingly support them, inquire what they think, and then share your view about how we should speak about these issues um, more carefully, more tenderly, and how we should seek to support those who are the most vulnerable. And that might well include, in a very practical way, as you're suggesting, Chris, that we provide sanctuary for a number of those people who are the innocents in all this. Krish, thanks so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Um, you are one of our one of our favourites on this show. You always speak so wisely and so faithfully. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Tim. And always a pleasure. Looking forward to our next conversation. Each week, we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. It may be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. I'd love to hear from you and attempt an answer. So please drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. Well, this week, Judy in London has been in touch and she asks this. Tim, there seems to be an endless number of protests outside the Houses of Parliament. And we've seen quite impactful marches through London recently. Do these marches and protests actually lead to change? Well, Judy, I tend to think that... The marches that we see from time to time and the almost permanent protests outside the Houses of Parliament are an important part of the kind of diversity and colour of our democracy. I will fight very hard to defend people's right to make those protests. I think it's a worrying sign from any government that seeks to silence them. I'm not convinced they have a vast amount of impact. Sometimes the scale of a march might demonstrate the volume of opinion, and that can influence politicians and their decisions. But I also tend to think that, that you know, the typical picture of people outside Parliament shouting and chanting, I'm not convinced that changes people's minds. I don't know how often, Judy, you change your mind if people shout at you. So I think opinions tend to be changed and ears tend to be uh, opened when um, people speak to one another uh, in a respectful manner, one-to-one. -one. But nevertheless, I think there are moments where the gatherings outside Parliament have been significant. During the really the depths or the heights of the Brexit debate, when all those very, very knife-edge votes were happening under Theresa May and Boris Johnson, the crowds outside were vociferous and sometimes angry on both sides. 
And of course, the Remainers were quite happy to pat me on the back as I went in and I'd be shouted at by the Brexiters. But I'd go across and talk to the Brexiters sometimes. And I was it was mostly a thing that went well, where we understood that whilst we disagree, it's possible to be a human and to respect the other side of the argument. So sometimes it's an opportunity to go into the midst of a group of people who think the opposite of what you do and seek some kind of common ground, even if it's only the fact that we are both bearers of the image of God. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's end our time together, as we always do, with prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the fact we live in a democracy. And uh, we thank you that in this democracy, our leaders sometimes change. Uh, our Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has made changes to his top team this week. We just pray you bless him and the new appointees, including, of course, uh, David Cameron. Pray you bless them with wisdom, especially when it comes to our country's engagement with the Israel-Gaza crisis. We pray that you would um, put your hand upon that terrible situation. And I pray you bring peace. I pray you'd strengthen your church in Israel and Gaza. And I pray you would turn the hearts of many to Jesus. We thank you for our friend, Chris Kandaya, who's been with us today on the show. And we thank you for his heart for the most vulnerable people. And we pray that you might show us um, whether or not this potential possibility of the UK providing sanctuary for particularly children and families from Gaza may be something that we could do. If that is a thing that you want, I pray you would open doors to make it possible. And I pray you'd help myself and others uh, to explore this faithfully and in a way which helps to uh, provide support for the innocent and promote peace. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks so very much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget that you can catch up on past episodes which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premier.plus forward slash a mucky business.